Welcome to Tom Bradford's Torah Class, an in-depth Old Testament Bible study that's brought to you from a Hebrew roots perspective. This week's lesson is week 26, the book of Matthew, chapter 7, the third continuation. In our previous lesson in Matthew chapter 7, Christ continues his Sermon on the Mount by making this, I think, unnerving statement in verses 22 and 23. He says, On that day many will say to me, Lord, Lord, didn't we prophesy in your name? Didn't we expel demons in your name? Didn't we perform many miracles in your name? Then I will tell them to their faces, I never knew you. Get away from me, you workers of lawlessness. Now we're going to focus the bulk of our time together today on this passage. And it ought to be a shot across our collective and individual bows because too easily believers, especially casual Christians, dismiss it and think that this could not possibly be speaking about them or about their congregation. What is a casual Christian? There is little better description of that than what we find in 1 Corinthians. Paul put it this way as he spoke to the congregation of Christ believers, Jews and Gentiles, in the city of Corinth. In 1 Corinthians 5, starting with verse 1, it is actually being reported that there is sexual sin among you. And it is sexual sin of a kind that is condemned even by pagans. A man is living with his stepmother, and you stay proud? Shouldn't you rather have felt some sadness that would have led you to remove from in your company the man who has done this thing? For I myself, even though I am absent physically, am with you spiritually. And I have already judged the man who has done this as if I were present. In the name of our Lord Yeshua, when you are assembled with me present spiritually and the power of our Lord Yeshua among us, hand over such a person to the adversary for his old nature to be destroyed, so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. A believer or a casual Christian is one who practices disobedience to God and is even proud of it. Notice that while the immediate consequence on earth for a casual Christian may be little more than expulsion from the congregation, the eternal consequences begin upon the arrival of the day of the Lord. Now, in our previous lesson, we discussed that among Jews in the first century, the term on that day was a shortened form of the day of the Lord. And it meant judgment day. It pointed to the day in history 
that the history of mankind and the world as it currently operated and operates ends and a new era dawns. Now, on that day, all humanity will be judged by God in a judicial sense. That is, all will stand before God as a defendant in a court of law and be judicially judged with the effects of the verdict lasting for an eternity. The judgment will be rendered according to our works and our deeds while we were still living. Admittedly, the common view of how the world would end and what would happen next and even what death itself brought, if anything, was not a decided matter among Jewish religious authorities in the New Testament era, and so it presented nothing like a firm or a commonly held conviction within Jewish society. However, what was generally understood was that God would judge each human at that point, or more likely in the Jewish mindset of that era, each Jewish human would be judged at that time. So to help explain what people could expect on Judgment Day, Christ makes it clear within the theme and the context of, of what He is saying that it is He who will act on behalf of the Father to make those judgments. The fundamental criteria He is going to judge by is two things. First of all, whether He knows us, and second, if we are or are not workers of lawlessness. Now we should notice that the first criteria depends on the second. Okay? That is, if one is lawless, then Christ does not know us. But the question now becomes, what does it mean to know us, and what is lawlessness? Him saying, I never knew you, cannot possibly mean that that individual standing before him on the Day of Judgment was a stranger to him, in the, the literal sense, that he had no prior knowledge of that person's existence. And it cannot mean that he never knew that person's character or inner being prior to the moment of judgment. Rather, to not know means I renounce you. I do not accept you as a member of the Kingdom of Heaven. You are not one of my own. Now, this interpretation of what Jesus meant is illustrated by Paul, who uses the term to know in a pertinent passage in 1 Corinthians. In 1 Corinthians chapter 8, verses 1 through 3, we read this. Now, about food sacrificed to idols, we know that, as you say, we all have knowledge. Yes, that is so, but knowledge puffs a person up with pride, whereas love builds up. The person who thinks he knows something doesn't yet know in the way he ought to know. 
However, if someone loves God, God knows him. Paul makes a kind of a, a riddle by employing a play on words using the term terms to know and to have knowledge several times and in several different ways, all with slightly different meanings. That is, within this short passage, to know can mean to have knowledge. To have knowledge can mean to possess information. Later Paul uses to know in the sense of having a, a belief or maybe a firm conviction about something. Then finally Paul says that if someone loves God, God knows him. But God knowing someone cannot mere, mean merely possessing information about them or having a conviction about them or simply being aware of their existence. Notice how Paul first talks about knowing and knowledge from the human perspective. Only at the last does he talk about it from the divine perspective. And from the divine perspective, to know someone means that God accepts that person as one of his own, provided that person loves him. Therefore, it has the same meaning in Matthew 7.23. For Christ to not know someone means to not accept them. It means to reject them. But on what grounds does Christ reject that person or persons? He says it's because they are workers of lawlessness. Now, most Bible versions say lawlessness, which is a good literal translation of the Greek anomia. But some others, like the King James Version, say iniquity. Or in a few translations like the NAB, it's translated as evildoers. Why the difference? Now, while I, of course, cannot get into the minds of the translators with any kind of certainty, from the outside, I can see only one reason. It is to blur what is actually said and meant in order to lead us to a different conclusion than what Christ actually intended. What's the motive for doing something like that? It's because if we accept the obvious meaning, it throws a monkey wrench into the works of some rather widely held church doctrines. So to best understand what Christ meant by lawlessness, I'd like to substitute the term Torah-lessness, or perhaps the Law of Moses-lessness. Now I have no doubt of this interpretation, because if we take the phrase the way it is most often taught, then it means that if we are criminals, or violators of any system of civil laws on earth, then he rejects us. Can our adherence to man-made legal systems, some of them horribly corrupt and ungodly, can that be what Christ is going to use to determine 
our eternal worthiness to enter into the kingdom of heaven? Well, as Paul might say, heaven forbid. Thus, lawlessness can only mean the lack of obedience to the law of Moses. Now, this subject and the general subject of the law of Moses as it pertains to believers is a mammoth undertaking. So at this time, I'm going to take us on a significant detour to examine it. Now, to start our detour, we have to backtrack to the beginning of Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. Well, beginning in Matthew chapter 5, after he has made a series of statements about how blessed are the poor in spirit, the meek, those who show mercy, those who seek peace, Yeshua suddenly pauses when he seems to realize that this huge Jewish crowd listening to him, and perhaps those who would re uh, read his words in the coming centuries, like us, might misunderstand what he was saying, or even have some objections to his words. He perceived that what they might have thought that he was pronouncing a new set of laws and commands, that is, a new set of laws, the law of Jesus, was something we could not take from this. I am, can imagine him, I can imagine him standing up, scanning this huge crowd, making eye contact with those nearest to him, then earnestly cautioning his rapt listeners using these words that we find in Matthew 5, 17-19. Christ says to this crowd, Do not think that I have come to abolish the Torah or the prophets. I have come not to abolish, but to complete. Yes, indeed, I tell you, until heaven and earth passes away, not so much as a youth, not so much as a stroke will pass from the Torah, not till everything that must happen has happened. So whoever disobeys the least of these commandments and teaches others to do so, they will be called the least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever obeys them and so teaches them, they will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. Christ said that he did not do the very thing that a majority of his believers today and for the last 16 or 17 centuries say that he did. They say he abolished the law of Moses and replaced it with his own commandments. I challenge the nearly universal church doctrine that the law of Moses is dead and gone. I believe that this subject, which is only recently starting to be re-examined by a small segment of the body of Christ, is most appropriate at this time, because we appear to have entered the final stage of mankind's salvation history that leads to universal judgment, the day of the Lord. Now, little has divided the Gentile church from our earliest faith roots as but an offshoot of first century Judaism, any more than the determination of what the effect of the Old Testament biblical law ought to be now upon Christians. Now, my intent is therefore to establish a context 
for us as believers to comprehend the law within the boundaries of the teaching of the overall Bible and of our faith in Yeshua as Savior, perhaps in a little different way than you've ever considered it. I'm going to do this by first establishing the point of view of the Apostle Paul, who is at once the most difficult, most controversial New Testament contributor that is also the most prolific, the most influential writer upon whom so many of the doctrines and beliefs of the Christian Church have been established. I want to start by defining the term, the law, because there is more to it than meets the eye. Now, before we can rightly discern what Jesus meant by the lack of law, anomia, lawlessness, as taken from Matthew 7.23, we first have to know what the biblical term law is referring to, because it can mean different things in different usages. The Bible, Genesis to Revelation, is a thoroughly Jewish, or more technically correct, Hebrew construction. Therefore, we must consult Jewish scholars to understand the context and the backdrop of its meaning. When a Christian sits down to discuss the law with a Jew, the two parties have entirely different concepts of what this discussion is going to be about. See, Christians think of the law as being a series of strict rules and commands, do's and don'ts, blessings and curses that exist in the Old Testament law of Moses. Jews, on the other hand, see the law as consisting of far more than what is written in the Old Testament. Judaism says that Moses did not write down all that God gave him on Mount Sinai. Most of what God told Moses, as it is said, was handed down and passed on by word of mouth from generation to generation over the centuries. And by sheer volume, this additional law called the Oral Law far outstrips the Written Law, that which was given on Mount Sinai, and we find in our Bibles. But there is also Halakha, the foundation of the Talmud. The Talmud is a compilation of Jewish rabbinical instructions and rulings that is designed to give the Hebrew people laws and ordinances that can be observed outside of the direct and written laws of Moses, but, according to the rabbis, those rulings are within the intent of the law of Moses. It is due to the present absence of a temple and so of a priesthood, which are necessary to enforce much of the law of Moses, that is why the, the, these laws of the rabbis are considered not just valid, but necessary out of practicality. This version or kind of law eventually became more popularly known among Jews by another very broad name, tradition. However, it is also often included under the 
general heading of just Torah or even just law. Now, with this rather broad Jewish understanding of the term the law in mind, I'd like to tell you about the Jewish position about the law. And even more important to our lesson today, their perspective on how Christians deal with the law, because it's this perspective that in turn gives rise to the nearly universal Jewish opposition to Christianity. First, Judaism sees Christians as having declared all the rulings and commands of the law as null and void. Second, Judaism says Christians believe that the law was essentially a negative, wretched, rigid, and faulty institution. Third, Jews believe that Christians see grace as a strictly New Testament innovation that played no role among Israel's religion that is represented by the Old Testament prior to the time of Jesus. And that believers in Jesus say that there is now a strong distinction between God's law and God's grace. And that the two are mutually exclusive and one must choose one over the other. Choose law or choose grace. Therefore, there's this great divide between the faith of the Jews and the faith of the Christians. Their conclusion is that Christians must believe that the God of the Old Testament is a fundamentally different God than the God of the New Testament. Otherwise, Christ followers just could not believe such things. Now, interestingly, the Jews aren't too far off the mark in their perception of what the institutional church believes and teaches, are they? See, there is a, a thread of thought that's kind of woven tightly throughout mainstream Christianity that the God of the Jews is the subject of the Old Testament and the God of the Christians is the subject of the New Testament. Therefore, Old Testament law is for the Jews and New Testament grace by faith, the law of Jesus, if you would, is for Christians. Now, Jews will correctly argue that grace is part and parcel of God's law. That is, grace is the entire point of the sacrificial system, whereby an innocent animal pays the price of atonement for a human person's sins. The animal, then, is a substitute for what is rightly due to humans for our sinning, death. They see the law as a divine gift to mankind of the greatest benefit, providing marvelous joy. Further, they believe that God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. The very first Christians, who were overwhelmingly Jews, did not hold to the viewpoint that the Gentile-dominated do uh, church has developed over the centuries as a core theological principle, what I call the anti-law view. Rather, 
from a historical perspective, it was only around 70 years after Christ's death when Gentiles began to take over the leadership of this messianic movement, as the first followers of Christ were called, and that this anti-law view first raised its ugly head. So Jews see that most Christians believe that now, because of Jesus, the law is dead and gone, having been replaced by grace by faith. And they point to Paul as having said that. But did the Jewish Paul actually hold to that view? I mean, did Paul believe and or teach that the law was to be abandoned and replaced because turns out it was bad and inferior? I mean, let's examine Paul a little bit. Because Paul's words are the primary source for modern Christian doctrine. See, one must bear in mind that Paul was not just any ordinary Jew. He was a highly educated person. He was educated in Jerusalem at the esteemed school of Gamaliel. And he was well on his way up the religious social ladder as a Pharisee of Pharisees. Few knew the law, tradition and biblical, as Paul knew the law. Now, the question for us is, as a result of Paul's encounter with the risen Christ on the road to Damascus, did Paul give up the religion of his Hebrew forefathers for something new? Did he stop observing the law of Moses, and instead did he go on a crusade to convince other Jews to give it up? And for Gentiles who wanted to follow Christ to ignore it? Was it his intent that followers of Yeshua were to never again celebrate any of the biblical festivals? That they should quit going to the temple? That they should shun the Ten Commandments of Mount Sinai that were set down by God and given to Moses. Let's begin to get our bearing on Paul, the man, by reading a, just a small excerpt from the book of Acts. Open your Bibles to Acts chapter 21. Acts chapter 21. I want you to follow along with me. We're going to start at verse 15, go through verse 26. So if you have a complete Jewish Bible, it's going to be on page 1390, 1390, 1390. Turn to it now, please. Again, we're going to start reading at verse 15 of chapter 21. Here it is. So at the end of our stay, we packed up and went to Jerusalem, and with us went some of the Talmudim, that's disciples, from Caesarea. They brought us to the home of the man with whom we were to stay, Manasin from Cyprus, who had been a disciple since the early days. In Jerusalem, the brothers received us warmly. And the next day, Shaul, that's Paul, and the rest of us went to Yaakov, that's James, and all the elders were present. And after greeting them, Shaul described in detail each of the things God had done among the Gentiles through his efforts. Well, on hearing it, they praised God, but they also said to him, You see, brother, how many tens of thousands of believers there are among the Judeans 
and they are all zealots for the Torah. Now, what they've been told about you is that you are teaching all the Jews living among the, the Gentiles to apostatize from Moses, telling them not to have a circumcision for their sons, not to follow the traditions. Well, what then's to be done? They will certainly hear that you've come. So do what we tell you. We have four men who are under a vow. Take them with you. Be purified with them. Pay the expenses connected with having their head shaved. Then everyone will know there is nothing to these rumors which they have heard about you. But that on the contrary, you yourself stay in line and keep the Torah. However, in regard to the Gentiles who have come to trust in Yeshua, we have joined them, joined in writing them a letter with our decision that they should abstain from what had been sacrificed to idols, from blood, from what is strangled, and from fornication. The next day, Shaul, Paul, took the men. He purified himself along with them, and he entered the temple to give notice of when the period of purification would be finished and the offering would have to be made for each of them. Clearly, James the Just, the biological brother of Yeshua, and the supreme leader, by the way, of the believing Jews in Jerusalem, did not think that Paul had quit observing the law. Yet there were rabble-rousers among the religious Jews who accused Paul of teaching against the law and all of its forms. James had a solution to this slanderous accusation. Put Paul to a very public test. Paul was told to go with certain men, described as brethren, meaning Messianic Jews, Christian Jews, if you would, who had taken the vow of a Nazarite, and to go to the temple and observe the standard Jewish purification rituals that accompany these vows. Well, James, he fully expected Paul to comply, and here in Acts 21, we see that Paul did, as was suggested, without balking at it in any way. So was Paul being a phony just to please James? Many, if not most denominational leaders will answer that in the affirmative. Yes, he was being a phony. Now, if we're going to understand Paul and to define him in his proper Jewish context, we must begin by asking ourselves a very basic question. Did he agree with Yeshua on every point, or did he not? And as we peel these layers back just a little deeper, we must also ask, did Paul teach what Jesus taught about the Law of Moses, or did he teach something different? Let's revisit the Sermon on the Mount. Matthew 5, 17 through 19. Don't think I've come to abolish the Torah or the prophets. I've come not to abolish, but to complete. Indeed, I tell you that in heaven, until heaven and earth pass away, not so much as a uterus stroke will pass from the Torah, not until everything that must happen has happened. Yeshua has just said in his sermon he did not abolish the law. 
nor should anyone ever say he abolished the law, nor should anyone ever teach that even some of the laws, any part of the laws, have been modified, let alone replaced, by anything he would say or do. So did Christ tell several thousand people above the Sea of Galilee that his coming and his teachings did not replace or abolish the law, but then a few years later, speaking from heaven, he said the opposite to Paul, and then sent Paul off to tell people not to obey the commandments of the Torah, to pay no attention to what Yeshua taught when he was alive and on earth. Without question, the law is something that never should have been removed from its divine place as central to trust in God and to His Messiah. Therefore, it never should have been removed from Christian doctrine, and it must be restored. The lawlessness, the anti-law view must end. You know, it's more important to our faith than ever today, if we have the eyes to see and the ears to hear. According to Matthew 7.23, our eternity will be greatly affected by our decision on this matter. Now, I want to give you some points to ponder about the true biblical nature and character of the Law of Moses as it's explained in the Scriptures. First of all, the law was never created to be a source of justification and therefore of salvation. The law of Moses was not given by God for redemption. It was never used as such at any point in history. The law was created and given to a people, the Hebrews, who were already redeemed. God didn't redeem Israel from Egypt by means of the law. God first redeemed them as a free gift of deliverance from bondage, and then a few months after the redemption, He brought them to His holy mountain, Mount Sinai, to give them His law. I propose that this is the same pattern that we're supposed to see, a pattern that is unchanged. It's intended for all believers. First, we receive Christ. Then, we receive God's commandments. Because without first receiving the Lord, and more importantly, the Lord then accepting us, we have no ability to properly carry out His commands in the Spirit that they were intended. I want to say this another way. Yeshua says in His Sermon on the Mount that the Law, the Torah, is our manual for living the redeemed life as a member of the Kingdom of Heaven. It's not. It never was a means to redemption. Second point, the law tells us what sin is, and then it returns around and reveals to us then what our sinful natures are. The law, the Torah, gives us the knowledge and the consciousness of sin. Now, I suspect that most of you accept that rather easily that generally it's the standard doctrine in most denominations. Yet in the same breath, 
it is equally as often said that the law was and remains only for Jews. Well, here's the question. If God intended that the law was only to be studied and obeyed by Jews, how is it that a Gentile Christian can say that a Jewish-only law is our source for the knowledge and consciousness of sin if it just doesn't even apply to us? Third point, trusting Christ confirms the Torah and the law. I'll say that again. Trusting Christ confirms the Torah and the law. Let's read Romans chapter 3, 28 through Romans chapter 4, verse 3. Starting at Romans 3, 28. Therefore we hold the view that a person comes to be considered righteous by God on the ground of trusting, which has nothing to do with legalistic observance of Torah commandments. Or is God the God of the Jews only? Isn't He also the God of the Gentiles? Yes, He is indeed the God of the Gentiles, because as you will admit, God is one. Therefore He will consider righteous the circumcised on the ground of trusting, and the uncircumcised through that same trusting. But does it follow that we abolish Torah by this trusting? Heaven forbid! On the contrary, we confirm Torah. Then what should we say Avraham our forefather obtained by his own efforts? For if Avraham came to be considered righteous by God because of legalistic observances, then he has something to boast about. But this is not how it is before God. For what does the Tanakh, the Old Testament, say? Avraham put his trust in God, and it was credited to his account as righteousness. See, the context for this vital section of the book of Romans is summed up in Romans 3.31 when we see that Paul makes the point that trusting in Messiah does not abolish the law. And in fact, it actually validates it. But the punchline of this entire statement is framed in verse 2 of Romans chapter 4 where it speaks of justification. Paul says that if someone tries to use their obedience to the law as their righteousness before God, that is, as a means to justification, they will incur God's wrath. Why? Because obeying the law is wrong? Is it obedience to something that's faulty or it no longer exists? No. It's because justification is not what God created the law to do. Trust in God. Trust in Messiah, the Messiah He sent to us. And the righteousness that the trust is imputed upon us is the one and only means there is to justification. And with the advent of God on earth, Jesus Christ, faith in Christ is the one and the only means to justification. And to try to use something else, even the law, for this purpose is not only wrong and ineffective, it's offensive to God. Yet that hardly means that obedience 
to God's laws and commands is now irrelevant. See, being a believer equips us to be more devoted to the law because we can now do what it commands in the proper spirit. Do you see this? Yeshua said that it was his purpose to fulfill the law, not to abolish it. For without the law, how will we know what pleases and displeases God? How will we know what sin and holiness is? How will we calibrate our moral compasses? Only accepting the truth of the gospel is needed for salvation. Only that. But the law remains fully valid, and it's there to guide us through our lives on earth and on into the kingdom of heaven. It is to teach us right from wrong, sin from righteousness. You see, after we become saved, that is the moment when we should begin to seek this knowledge of the law and to learn it so that we know how to do it. To properly incorporate God's laws and commandments into our lifestyles and into our behaviors that make us, that's what makes us reflective of God's ideal. Do it in reverse, and all you get is an unholy legalism. Fourth point the law acts as our protector. By our being obedient to the principles of the law, we are living within a kingdom of light and truth designed by the Creator. The Lord constantly tells His people not to wander outside the boundaries of this kingdom. Why? Because outside of it is nothing but deceit and darkness and death. See, a good question right about now ought to be, how do we 21st century believers who do not live in an ancient Hebrew culture obey the law in the way and the spirit that Paul pres prescribes? See, step one is by acknowledging that the law and the grace of Christ are not mutually exclusive. Rather, they're complementary. Christ redeems, the Holy Spirit reveals and guides, the law instructs and protects. The intent of the law is to instruct believers in God's principles, and that is what we should focus on. The New Testament rests entirely upon the foundation of the Torah and the law, and so the New Testament generally expects its readers to already know the principles of the Torah and the law. I want to return for a moment to how Judaism views the righteousness before God aspect of the law. See, one of the prime assumptions within the church is that Jews endeavor to work their way to heaven by being obedient to the law. And so, Judaism is a religion totally reliant on human deeds and behavior as a self-justification, while Christianity is a religion 100% based on grace, and thus, for us, 
works and deeds, and especially obedience to God's commandments, are either secondary, or they might even present a danger to our salvation. It might surprise you to know that Jews do not believe that being obedient to the Torah, the law, is what takes them to heaven. For one reason, Jews don't believe that after death one goes to heaven to live with God. I think this quote from a well-known Jewish website called Judaism 101 says it the best. Some people look at these teachings and deduce that Jews try to earn our way into heaven by performing the mitzvot, that is, the commands. This is a gross mischaracterization of our religion. See, it's important to remember that unlike some religions, Judaism is not focused on the question of how to get to heaven. Judaism is focused on life and how to live it. Non-Jews frequently ask me, do you really think you're going to go to hell if you don't do such and such? And it always catches me a bit off balance, because the question of where I am going after death simply doesn't enter into the equation when I think about the commandments. We perform the commandments because it's our privilege. It's our sacred obligation to do so. We perform them out of a sense of love and of duty, not out of a desire to get something in return. That's pretty admirable. See, Jews believe that their greatest duty to God and the greatest joy that they can attain during their life on earth is to know that their obedience to the law is pleasing to the God of Israel. And there is practically no thought for them of what happens when life is over. See, Christianity has moved towards a different extreme. While Jews generally have little thought about life after death, for believers, our lives on earth are often viewed as having but modest meaning, and instead, most of our thoughts and efforts point towards life after death and all of its heavenly rewards. We see our works and behaviors as having a very limited role in our lives. Instead, it's our belief in Christ and our good thoughts. That's everything. Now, because the point of this detour is to try to bring us to a concrete understanding of Matthew 7, 22 and 23, and what Yeshua meant, meant by workers of lawlessness, I want to once again quote Paul in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 1. Now, concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our assembling to meet Him, we beg you, brethren, not to be quickly shaken in mind or excited, either by spirit or by word, or by letter purporting to be from us, to the effect that the day of the Lord has come. Let no one deceive you in any way, for that day will not come unless the rebellion comes first, and the man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of perdition, who opposes and exalts himself against every so-called God or object of worship, so that he takes his seat in the temple of God, proclaiming himself to be God. Who is this man of lawlessness? We all understand that he is the Antichrist, don't we? 
So what does this man's lawlessness refer to? Is he being disobedient to Roman law? To Syrian law? To American law? To international law? Is the Antichrist simply a modern super scoff law like Jesse James or Bonnie and Clyde who have no regards for the different laws created by the many different nations and societies? When the Bible refers to law, it only ever means one thing. The law, the Torah, the laws of Moses, God's laws. Our possible entry into the Kingdom of Heaven is certainly not going to be measured by man-made laws. So this man of lawlessness is the epitome of a worker of Torah-lessness. He is a man who's going to thumb his nose at God's laws and commandments and God's moral definitions of good and evil. Therefore, the law is important, it's valid, it's relevant for us, not only for the several reasons we've discussed, but because if we do not know the law, we will hardly be able to even recognize the Antichrist who will be primarily known by being anti-law, being against God's Torah, being against the Law of Moses, being a worker of lawlessness. Bottom line, you see, this warning about lawlessness is not for pagans. This warning is to those who claim to rely on Yeshua's name who claim to be part of the believer's congregation the world over. Some of these people will be intentionally counterfeit in order to inflict harm. Others will deceive themselves, thinking they can claim Christ, but at the same time deny God's commandments and doing what is right instead in their own eyes. Yeshua calls these, what I've just described to you, workers of lawlessness, and they will be denied entry into the kingdom of heaven. Well, this ends our detour, and we will take up verse 24 and move towards completion of the Sermon on the Mount the next time we meet.